Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Well, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, we're going to continue our series through the book of Psalms, looking today at Psalm 36. And the title of our study today is God's Steadfast Love. Would you please join me now in prayer? Lord, we thank you that your word, first and foremost, is true. And not only is it true, but it is sufficient to meet us where we are today. And it is sufficient to teach us about your character and about our sin and about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. And we are so thankful, Lord, that we are not left to our own devices, but you have given us the 66 books that constitute the word of God so that we might know you, so that we might worship you so that we might come to faith in the Lord Jesus and we might grow in our walk with you uh, through and by your spirit. And so we thank you, Lord, for the time to open your word, to study it, to grow in our knowledge of it and our skill in handling it. And we pray, Lord, that you would Use our time together. We know that you will because Isaiah 55, 11 says that your word will not return without void. And so we thank you, Lord, for this time. Teach us and instruct us in, in the righteous way, the way that is lit by your word. So, Lord, illuminate now your word as we read, as we study. And take this word and plant it deep in our hearts I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm 36. Psalm 36. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O Lord, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house and give you give you give them drink from the river of delights. For with you is a fountain of life and your light do we see light. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of the arrogance come upon me nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. This is the reading of God's holy, precious word. 
On May 11, 1960, a team of Israeli Mossad agents kidnapped Nazi war criminal Adolf Eichmann off the streets of Buenos Aires, Argentina, and speared him back to Israel to stand trial. Eichmann had deported millions of Jews to concentration camps, and now he would stand trial before the Jews in Israel. In fact, this was the first trial in history to be broadcast on television in its entirety. The eyes of the world were riveted on the courtroom in Jerusalem, and the most dramatic moment may have been when Yahil Dinor, a concentra concentration camp survivor, took the stand. A film clip showed Dinur walking into the courtroom and stopping as he saw Eichmann. This was the first time Dinur had seen Eichmann's uh, since Eichmann sent him to Auschwitz 18 years earlier. And Dinur began to sob uncontrollably, then collapsed on the floor as the judge pounded his gavel for order in the crowded courtroom. Mike Wallace later interviewed Dinur and asked him about that moment. Was Denor overcome by hatred, fear, horrid memories? No, it was none of these. Rather, all at once, he realized Eichmann was not the godlike army officer who had sent so many to their deaths. This Eichmann was an ordinary man. I was afraid about myself, said Denor. I saw that I am capable to do this. I, I am exactly like he. Wall summed up Denor's terrible discovery with a terrifying phrase, Eichmann is in all of us. This horrifying statement captures the central truth about the Bible's teaching about man's nature. You see, because of the fall, sin is in each of us. It's not just the susceptibility of sin, but sin itself. Dinor did not break down and collapse because he saw the horror of sin in one man. He broke down because he saw the horror of sin in humanity. Eichmann is in all of us because all of us are in Adam. Adam and Eve sinned against God. As their children, all of us have inherited their sin nature. We are sinners by birth and by choice. And the proof of this is that we're so easily tempted to sin. James 1, 13-14 says, We are tempted by theft because we are thieves, even though we may not in fact steal. We are tempted to kill because we are murderers, even if we do not literally slay our brother. We are tempted to adultery because we are adulterers, even though we may not commit adultery. And James says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. In the words of Psalm 36, verse 1, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. Each one of us hears the voice of sin whispering in our hearts. Eichmann is in all of us. But you see, there is hope. You and I are sinners, but God is full of steadfast love. This hope is at the heart of Psalm 36. And here in this psalm, what we're going to see is David contrasts the darkness of our sin with the light of God's steadfast love. His faithful, loving commitment to his people. And first, David reveals the darkness of our sin in verses 1 through 4. And then in contrast, David reveals God's light in verses 5 through 9. And then David asks, ends with a prayer asking God to keep giving and showing him his steadfast love to himself in verses 9 through 11. 
So let's, let's look at first how this psalm reveals our sin. Now this psalm, it begins with a terrible statement about the human heart in verse 1. It says, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. And these words are terrible because they show how deep the root of evil runs in our world. It's not in a lack of education. And it's not in the root of it. It's not in equality or injustice, terrible as these things are. And evil is not going to be solved by technology or progress. The problem is, is that we are sinners by nature and by choice. And we are in need of the rescue that Christ has accomplished in his death, burial, and resurrection. Sin speaks to us deep inside and we listen. And this is not just for a problem for the very bad people of the world. Those murderers, rapists, serial killers... David includes himself here. In fact, the Hebrew in verse 1 literally says, transgression speaks of the wicked deep in my heart. And David heard the voice of sin whispering inside of him, even though he was God's very anointed, a man who was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write scripture. You see, you hear the voice of sin inside you too. He is describing, David is, the condition of every man and woman and child in this verse. And because we listen to the enticement of sin, we do not fear God. And the word fear in verse 1 is not the word that's used in the classic phrase, the fear of the Lord. David chooses another word that means abject terror, the kind of terror that leaves you trembling. And so the voice of sin is so smooth and so seductive that we are not terrified of falling into the hands of the living God as described in Hebrews 10, 30 through 31. And yet we should be afraid of the judgment of God. And the fact that we're not, it shows how powerfully sin blinds us. The, the right kind of fear, the fear of God is a healthy thing. It's a right thing. If you're walking on railroad tracks and the train is coming, you should, you should, your heart should pound. You should be so afraid that if you get off the tracks, you might, you should be so afraid, I should say, that you will want to get off the tracks. You, you should not be on the tracks in the first place. But if you are, the blaring horn of the locomotive should strike fear in your heart and terrify you. You see, the right fear is a healthy thing. And one of the worst effects of our sin is that we no longer fear God. We do not tremble at his judgment comes thundering down the tracks of history. What, what we see in our culture today, we see it in our movies, we see it on the television screen. People do not have any fear of God. In fact, we, we see our culture brazenly out in the open, flaunting its sexual immorality, thumbing its nose at the God who, who, who may, causes them to be even to have breath in life, who, who sustains this world, who, who is the one who even gives them the ability to utilize their voice and speech. And yet what our culture does is thumb its nose at 
God, thinking that, you know what? God isn't going to do anything. He's not going to ever hold me accountable. It's not going to matter in the end of the day. And that proves that one of the worst effects of our sin is we do not fear God. You do not tremble at his judgment, comes thundering down the tracks of history. And Jesus said this in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. What Jesus is saying is, is one of the most helpful things for us. He's the one who can destroy the body and the soul so that he is the only one that we should legitimately fear. And one of the worst things that sin does that blinds us and it distracts us from thinking about this judgment and it leads us to pursue pleasure for pleasure's sake. And that's exactly what our world is pursuing because it's blinded to its sin. In Romans 3, Paul describes the sinfulness of humanity by quoting 14 times from six Old Testament sources. And the final word to summarize the deadly power of sin, Paul quotes Psalm 36, verse 1. There is no, now no fear of God before his eyes. How do we get to this place, this terrible place where we no longer fear God and his judgment? And what do we do about this in our lives? Well, verses 2 through 4 of Psalm 36 are going to describe humanity's descent into darkness. And it starts inwardly with self-deception, lying to ourselves. We flatter ourselves thinking that, that God will never hold me accountable for what the things that I do. Uh, I'm just able to do whatever I want to do. And God counters this when he says in Psalm 36, verse 2, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found and hated. Now, people tell themselves they're never going to be punished. And if they didn't, they, they'd be afraid of God's judgment and the fear of standing before him would make them miserable. And so this self-deception is a sort of psychological coping mechanism. The fact that most people go cheerfully about their lives shows that they're blind to the judgment to come. After all, they think that they are going to enter into paradise just because they are good people. Our cities and our neighborhoods are full of men and women who pat themselves on the back and think that they are good at the end of the day, and God will not hold them accountable for how they live. And yet we lie to ourselves to avoid dealing with the terrible reality of the wrath of God. In fact, how do we flatter ourselves with the idea that we will escape judgment? Many people choose to believe there's no afterlife, that once you die, that's, that's the end. They tell themselves there's no creator, no judge. In Carl Sagan's famous phrase, we are just matter grown to consciousness. This is the position of many people who consider themselves to be intelligent, educated, scientific, and they, they flatter themselves for having minds that lift lift up uh, themselves above superstition and primitive religious fears. Others lie to themselves thinking, you know what? It doesn't matter what I do now. There's going to be time at the end of my life when, you know, like the thief on the cross, I'll just repent and I'll go to heaven. 
So I'll just repent later. After all, death seems a long way off. Their anthem might be, tonight we are young, so let us set the world on fire. Let's party. We can burn brighter than the sun. And so they assume they'll live to an old age, and there'll be plenty of time to ask for forgiveness and to turn over a new leaf. They flatter themselves, thinking that they can work at the system, outsmart God. But no one knows how long they are going to live, not even for the next moment. And others think God would never be angry at them because they live orderly, moral lives. They think, I'm a good person. Could God really be angry with me? And so they flatter themselves, thinking that the good things they have done far outweigh any sins that they have committed. And in a related way, others flatter themselves by remembering some big thing they have done for God. I gave this large gift. I went on that missions trip. I helped this person. I helped the homeless person. I served in this ministry. And so God owes it to me to let me into heaven. And now they may, now they may never say this out loud. And they might pat themselves on their back because what they did was such a big help in their eyes to Almighty God. And others flatter themselves because they were born in a Christian family. And so they think God will take it easy on me because I have been in church since I was in the nursery. They think because God loves their parents, he automatically loves them too. And the Jews in Jesus' day thought the same thing. They boasted in Matthew 3, 9, we have Abraham as our father. Others flatter themselves that God will never judge them because they have had a powerful experience of the presence of God. Maybe it was a vision or a deep feeling of peace. Maybe it was a prophecy someone spoke about them. And they have been holding on to this experience for years and years and years. And others flatter themselves because they think they will not face judgment because they have the right doctrine. I'm not like those liberals who water down the scriptures so God likes me. He loves me. And so they pat themselves on the back for being orthodox and faithful to the truth. They forget, though, that Satan has good theology himself. The demons believe in God, and they shudder at in judgment that is waiting for them in James 2.19. But it's not only that we flatter ourselves in these many ways. We also sin against others. Our descent into darkness starts with self-deception, but it turns outward in our words and in our actions Psalm 36, 3 through 4 says this, The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and to do good. He plots trouble while on his bed he sets himself in a way that is not good and does not reject evil. You know, see, since if, if we are not accountable to God, then there is nothing to stop us from going wherever our sinful hearts lead us. We can do whatever we want to. We'll just live for pleasure's sake. And the, sadly, there are so many people today, they are doing this. They'll, they'll go to the shopping mall and they'll load up their basket in, with thing after thing and clothes after clothes. They'll, they'll go on Amazon and they'll just buy a whole heap ton of things because they want what they want and they don't care what it, what it costs. Verse 3 is especially sobering because David is implying here that this person once did act wisely and do good, but he ceased. Sin whispered in their heart. He flattered himself that it would not matter to God and now he has fallen farther than he could ever imagine. 
And in the end, we are no longer able to recognize evil for what it is and then to reject it. James Stewart put it this way, every time he sins, he is making himself less capable of realizing what sin is, less likely to realize that he is a sinner for the ugly thing, the really diabolical thing about sin is that it perverts a man's judgment. It stops him from seeing what is right. That's the opposite of what the gospel does. Because what the gospel does is the gospel gives us eyes to see and ears to hear. <coughs> In the gospel, we are, we are given a new heart with new desires and new affections so that, so that we can see rightly both from the, from the word and through the word and by the spirit that indwells us so that we can see life in our world through a biblical lens. And that's exactly what sin does, distorts. It is, distorts our ability to see the world rightly. And instead of worshiping God, the creator, many people worship nature. And yet Romans 1 says that God will give up men, gives up men to this desire. God honors their request. Why? The reason is, is they're getting what they, what they want. So they want pleasure, and so they're going to pursue pleasure. But what people today don't understand is that pleasure, for pleasure's sake, apart from God, that's a matter of worship. And the reason that God is giving people over in Romans 1 to what they want it's because that's a matter of worship. That's why Paul is contrasting the, the creature with the creator in Romans 1. The creator alone is to be worshipped. He is to be feared. He is to be, he is to be adored and, and glorified and honored in all of our lives. Because we are the creature. He is the creator. He is the one who upholds and sustains this world and gives us life and breath and food and shelter and so much more. And yet we pursue pleasure apart from him. That's what James Stewart is saying. That it sin stops him from seeing straight. And now, as sobering a look at, at the terrible reality of our sin is, David now is about to turn to the glory of God. The good news for sinners like me and you is that we don't have to flatter ourselves and that, that God will not judge us for our sins. We don't have to lie to ourselves. There's another way. We can run to God and find refuge in the Lord and the righteousness of God in Christ. And the choice could not be clear. We can continue in darkness telling ourselves that we're okay, that seeking pleasure apart from God is okay, that God will not judge us, that things will not go from bad to worse, or we can come into the light of the love of God in Christ alone. In fact, David sings about God's goodness and his love in the next verses, and that makes this a choice that is a no-brainer. Who would not want the blessings of knowing God the way David describes him in verses 5 through 9? Look at who he is. You should run, not walk to a God like this. First, David describes who God is. He mentions five attributes of God that fill the earth and surround us. 
<coughs> Psalm 36, 5 through 6 says, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deeps. Man and beast you save, O Lord. And now God's steadfast love seems to be the most important attribute in this psalm. It is the first attribute David mentions, and he refers to God's steadfast love three times in these verses. Steadfast is loving kindness or unfailing love. In some translations, it's God's covenant love. It's his has said love. It means that he is faithful and he's loyal to his people, just as a good man loves his wife and is faithful to her in all things. And when David says that God's steadfast love extends to the heavens in verse 5, he means there are no limits to the love of God. God's steadfast love in verse 5, it means that he loves us to the moon and to beyond. His unfailing love is as vast as the immeasurable vastness of space. There are no limits to his loving commitment to his people. And the second attribute David mentions is God's faithfulness in verse 5. Alexander McLaren argues that this refers to the word of God, the Bible, because only a God who has spoken and given us his promises can be faithful. You can count on God, in other words, to be faithful to his word. God promises in Isaiah 118, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And again, Psalm 103.12 says, And as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgression from us. You see, God is faithful. He's faithful to his word. He will always act consistently in a consistent manner. To his word, Titus 1.2 says that God never lies. 2 Corinthians 1.20 tells us that all of the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. God is faithful to his word and God will always act in accord with his word. Third, David sings that God's righteousness in verse 6 is like the highest mountains. God will do what is right in every situation. He is always fair. He's always just. The mountains of God in verse 6 is a way of saying high mountains. And so picture the Rocky Mountains with their granite faces. God's righteousness is strong and moving like these. This is good news for those who love the Lord because it means he will do right by them. And the fourth attribute David mentions is God's judgment. Verse 6, they are as deep as the ocean. God doesn't make shallow decisions or short-sighted plans. God sees to the bottom of every question. He sees to the bottom of every human heart. His judgments are deep. And the fifth thing that David wants us to know about God is that he is our Lord and Savior. Psalm 36, 6, man and beast, you save, O Lord. And this, this means that it is God's nature to save his creation. Sin has ruined us. It has destroyed both humanity and nature, but God is a saving God. And you, you might wonder, why would God bother with me? I've made a mess of my life, and why does he even care? You need to know that it is in, God, in God's nature to save people. He takes our sinful lives, and he rebuilds them by his grace. He rebuilds sinful families affected by uh, and damaged by sin. His plans are even bigger than you or me. He is restoring and rebuilding this entire world that is ruined by sin. And as if this is not enough, after David has listed five attributes, now he lists five blessings for those who know the Lord in verse 7. 
How precious is your steadfast love, O Lord. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. You see, God's steadfast love is precious because it means that we belong to him. He's committed to us. If we take refuge beneath the wings of God, he will protect us. In fact, the picture here is of a hen hiding her chicks from danger under her feathers. She, she will shelter her chick even if she dies in the process. After napalm was dropped on Hiroshima, Nabu Hayashi returned home to find a hen scorched to death with her chick still tucked safely beneath her wing. And he was amazed to find they were still alive in the same way God sacrifices himself to save us. In fact, let's be clear here. This is exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us. We deserve to die in our sins. And yet God took on flesh and became a human being in the God man, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ never sinned. He did not deserve to die, but he went to the cross and died in our place and for our sin and was buried and rose again. He took the punishment that we deserve to shield us and to protect us. And so we need to I need to ask you the question, will you run to him for shelter or will you stay outside the shelter and the provision that he alone can give you? And then do you understand that you will die in your sins if you do that? The second blessing is satisfaction. Psalm 36 verse 8 says, they feast on the abundance of your house in verse 8. Literally, those who come into God's house are satisfied by its fullness. Even more literally, the word abundance, it means fat because rich food and not meager rations. And many people are like the prodigal son, so hungry, and they're ready to eat pig slop if they could just go home and be welcomed to the table. God has abundance in his house to satisfy us in Jesus Christ forevermore. Psalm 1611 says that there are pleasures forevermore in God. God promises us that he will satisfy us because he alone is sufficient. The third is blessing. Psalm 36 verse 8 says, you give them drink from the river of your delights. But the, what could this river be? The joy God gives his people is the joy of God himself. And David says this in Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God will be with us, an ever-flowing river of joy and delight. Our joy in him begins now. In this life, as we come to know him and his spirit fills our hearts. But in heaven, we will see him face to face. We will be with him. We will enjoy him. We will worship him. And our hearts will delight in him forever. Now, the fourth and the fifth blessings are light and life in our text. Psalm 36, verse 9 says, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. In fact, it's hard to read this verse without thinking of the way the Apostle John described Jesus at the beginning of his gospel in John 1, 4, which says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus Christ is the source of all spiritual and physical life. He shines in the world to reveal truth and reality to us. Without him, we only hear the voice of sin whispering in our hearts. The things we thought were truth were really only darkness. But God struck a match by sending his son into the world. And when we recognize the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, when we realize that this man is God and that he died for sinners, his light shines in our hearts and we see reality for the first time. He is light and life for you and me. 
In fact, the world will never begin to, to see, uh, the world will never look the same, I should say, when you see the light of God shine in your hearts for the first time. And when you know your creator, you will see the world with different eyes. In your light do we see light. And now David leaves us with a choice as we wrap up our time together today. There is a stark contrast between those who know God and those who continue in their sin. Psalm 36, 10 through 12 says, Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. Will you continue in your sin today, pretending that God does not see and does not know you, that he will not hold you to account? Or will you run to the righteousness of God in Christ alone for shelter from your sins? Or will you stay in darkness or will you come into the light? Will you choose lies or will you believe the love of God found only in Christ alone? My friends, today we're living in a time and a day when too many people are excusing, even minimizing their sin, and they think that it doesn't matter how I live. Sadly, there are many Christians in the church today who have succumbed to this lie. They are totally backslidden. They are living however they want to live. They are living contrary to the salvation that Christ has won for them. In Romans 6, 1, Paul says very clearly that we are not to live how we want to live. Instead, in Romans 6, 11, he tells us to reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Why? Because of what Christ has done. We are to put to death. And look, look at all the times in Romans 8 where the Holy Spirit is mentioned and the Spirit is at work to help us to put our sin to death. Not to embrace it, not to coddle it, not to say, oh, you know what, that's for another day. Uh, and so we minimize and excuse it. And we might feel sorrow, we might feel regret for engaging in it. And we're not talking about perfectionism here. We're talking about, we're talking about life in Christ, life in the Spirit, where, where Paul says in, in, uh, in Galatians 5, there is freedom. There's all the freedom in the world. For, for Christians who desire to honor him, who the fruits of the Spirit are, are being made real in our lives through the means of God's grace. And Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 that we are to discipline ourselves for the sake of godliness. Some of you might think, well, you're just talking about our, my performance now. No, I'm talking about because of the grace of God that that God where God has taken your heart of stone and he has replaced it with a new heart with new desires and new affections for himself. Now, Paul says in Romans 6 that you are to consider yourself dead to sin because of what Christ has done and alive to God. In in John 15, Jesus says that you were once his enemy and now you're his friend. This because of the grace of God. We are, Titus 3.15 tells us that we are to renounce ungodliness. Uh, Paul says in Colossians 3 that we are to put off the old man and put on the new man. And he, it goes on to explain what that new man looks like. 
It looks like the spirit at work in our hearts producing love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, and self-control. This is the love of God. Sadly, we're living in a time that Dietrich Bonhoeffer described during World War II. That is a time of cheap grace. A time where we take the costly, costly grace of God that was paid, that where he paid the penalty for us in our place and for our sin. And he rose again. And we cheapen it by thinking, you know what, I'll just do whatever I want. I'll just live however I want to live. I'll just do whatever I want to do. I'll just be whoever I want to be. And we wonder why so many marriages are in shambles. We wonder why so many people, men are on the sidelines, why marriages are being crippled, why divorce is so rampant, why the LGBTQ revolution is running rampant, and why transgenderism and homosexuality and the politics of our day are continuing to decline. And yet, don't you understand that without the restraining hand of the spirit at work in our world, it would be infinitely worse. Infinitely worse. And here's the thing. Real repentance is not just a sorrow for sin. It is a hatred of our sin. It is a seeing of our sin for what it is. It is a whore. It, it is a whore. It is reprehensible. It is putrid filth in the eyes of God. Of a holy God. Too many Christians have an, an anemic, a wrong view of sin. And so we, we, we struggle to behold the glory of our Savior and our Lord. We, we struggle with assurance because we have too high of an estimation of ourselves. You know, what's amazing is John the Baptist he was, he, was, he was at the height of his ministry. And he realized that he could not untie the sandal. He was not even worthy to untie the sandal of Jesus. And he said in John 3.30, he must increase, but I must decrease. So too many of us want a platform, want to be noticed we want that pat on the back. We want that raise. We want to get what we justly think we deserve. And what we need to remember is we deserve nothing. What we deserve is hell and damnation. And what God instead gives us is grace and mercy. If you are a Christian, you are united to Christ by faith. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's good news. That's, that's gospel truth. What Jesus said in John 19.30, it is finished. One of his last seven recorded words, the veil was torn in two. The veil that separated people from God was removed. That veil, that that was only able to, only once a year, and only when the high priest was ritually and ceremonially clean could he enter, was torn 
asunder. You see, this is what Jesus has done for us. Jesus has not only made us new creations in him, he's given us access to himself. And that access is 24-7, 365 days a year for life. And in heaven, we will be, be before him. We will worship him as he is. We will stand in his very presence and we will worship him. We will sing praises to him. We will learn from him. We will be instructed by the Lord. And yet some people find that utterly repugnant. Because what they want is they want what they want now. They want the best life now. They want, they want to feel good now. But that's not the way that things work. That's what sin does. Is it, it clouds our judgment and it, it causes us to only want what we want in this life. And what God's love does is it unveils our eyes to the glory of God, to the holiness of God, to the beauty of God himself. And to be only satisfied by God. This is the great danger of cheapening the grace of God in our day. The, the, great, the great cheapening of God's grace by living however you want to live and thinking you are okay. But Hebrews 12 says that God disciplines those whom he loves. That's a, that's a good thing. That, that is not about our security. Our security, Paul says in Romans 8, 31 through 39 Cannot be, we cannot be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That means we are secure in him. What we're talking about is our fellowship being hindered, disrupted. And this is why 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. Why? Because we, he goes on in 1 John 2, 1 through 2, we have a faithful high priest. So the love of God not only saves us, the love of God not only satisfies us, but the love of God also causes us to put our sin to death because we have been made alive by Christ. We are new creations in him. And we are to grow up in him. The spirit is at work in our lives to point us from the word to none other than Jesus Christ. He aims to do this for our good. He disciplines us because he loves us. A father who loves his son disciplines his son or his daughter. This is what our father, our heavenly father does. He disciplines us. He chastises us. He corrects us. He helps us. In fact, one of the main aims of the Holy Spirit is to Use the word in our lives to bring correction to our lives. And this is what a text like Psalm 36 does. It helps us to see the, 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 the awfulness, the depravity of our hearts. And it should lead us to cry out to God, Lord, help me, a sinner, a wretched sinner. And it should lead us to sing that famous song, Amazing Grace, how great a sound that saved a wretch just like me. 
I once was lost, but now I'm found. That's amazing grace. That wretches like you and me can be found by an all-sufficient Savior King. If you're not a Christian today, I plead with you to, to, believe, to repent and to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he alone can save. If you're a Christian, on the basis of Romans 6, 11, I plead with you to reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to God. And to understand Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. For so many of you, you will heap condemnation after condemnation on yourselves. And what you don't understand, if you are in Christ, as Paul says, if you are a Christian, there is no condemnation for you because you are held by the hands that the very hands that uphold and have shaped and molded all of creation. You are upheld by the power of God in the righteousness of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for Christ. There is no forgiveness. There is no pardon apart from the righteousness of God in Christ. We are so thankful that, that at the right time, Romans 5 tells us that you came and died for the ungodly in our place and for our sin, and that you were buried and you rose again. And so, Lord, help us as your, as your people in Christ to heed and to obey Romans 6.11, to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Help us not to excuse this, to minimize our sin. To say it's okay to do whatever we want to do. Help us not to cheapen the grace of God. And if we have, Lord, may you lead us to repentance. And we thank you, Lord, for the grace of God in Christ our Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.